Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. It can be found on page 955 in the Pew Bible. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as, my, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot ex exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an, unbeliev an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, before we come to this passage, we need to pray. And you need to pray for me as we work through this letter together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for this time in our year uh, when there is a bit of a pause, uh, when there is a break uh, from things. We're grateful for the rest. Uh, we certainly feel um, the sense of things um, beginning to turn back towards uh, the fall, uh, and you know the anxieties and the joys uh, that, that come with that. Um, over the next several weeks, we're going to be praying for students uh, who are graduating um, and, uh, and, and who are leaving uh, this place uh, to go off to, to other places. We'll have the opportunity to pray for them um, by name. But I do want to pray for all of those uh, who are students, who are teachers, um, that these last weeks of rest... Um, would be restful, that they would be restorative uh, for all of us. 
um, that we would have the chance uh, to, to pause. Uh, we are always grateful, we pray this every week, for the fact that when you call us together to worship you, on Sunday you remind us uh, that our week begins in rest, that our lives really uh, begin by resting in you. Um, I'm thankful for what Samuel prayed uh, earlier uh, out of Psalm 62. Uh, it is indeed the, the cry and the deep need uh, of our hearts that we would learn to wait upon you alone in silence. And that is hard for us. Uh, we don't have hearts that are silent. Uh, we don't have um, minds that rest uh, easily in you. We need your spirit uh, to give us that rest uh, as your gift. Father, this, this passage, um, this, this letter uh, that, that we're reading uh, over these next weeks as we look at chapter 7, it, it is going to hit us hard, uh, whether we are married, whether we are single, um, whether we are widowed, whether we are divorced, um, whatever stage of life uh, we find ourselves in, um, it's encouraging in some ways to see that human nature hasn't changed that much because the things that Paul has to talk about are still the things that cut closer to our hearts uh, than just about anything else. Father, I, I want to pray um, that our hearts would be open uh, to your words. Um, and we want to acknowledge that, that the openness of our hearts uh, is something that only you can give. Um, please soften our hearts. Uh, to hear what you uh, would have us say. Father, as we, as we take a look at this, I pray, as I always do, uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as we've been going through this this letter, I think when, when Bradley and I chose uh, to preach 1 Corinthians, we knew um, that it had great and important things to say to us as a church. We knew that there were uh, topics uh, for us to look at that would be helpful, that would be beneficial. We knew that they would be hard. Uh, we knew that there was rough stuff coming. I remember when we laid out the schedule uh, and, and we looked at, at the weeks, you know, that Bradley was going to preach four in a row so I could get some vacation. Thank you. Uh, and now I'm on for four in a row uh, so that he can get away a little bit. You know, we noticed, oh, Bradley's got chapters five and six about sexual immorality. Good luck there. Uh, and then I looked and said, oh, I've got chapter seven. Good luck there. And of course, it's not luck that we really need. Um, it, it really is the Holy Spirit uh, that Bradley and I need as we're preaching and that all of us need uh, to hear uh, and to listen uh, to words um, like these. Um, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you over these next four weeks. Um, we are probably going to spend four weeks in, in chapter seven. Um, I want to invite you uh, to avoid the temptation um, to put up your hand and say, whoa, too close, too real too close to the heart. Um, as I prayed just now, Paul is going to be talking about things uh, that cut as close to our hearts as, as anything. And it is, it is kind of wondrous to see how 
a letter written 2,000 years ago can do that, right? Um, this is a hard section of Paul's letter. It's hard to understand. It's even hard to translate. I'll talk a little bit about that. Um, but even setting aside the intellectual questions, what exactly does Paul mean, you know, that we're going to need to spend some time on, it is hard emotionally. Um, it is hard to talk about what God is calling us all to um, as people who are married, but in marriages that struggle, or people who aren't married and who desire to be married and have perhaps been waiting a long time, people who are divorced, um, people who, if aren't widowed now, a lot of us will be one day. And Paul is going to talk about what it means to live the life to which God has called us. The reason that I asked Tim to, to read um, all the way to verse 17, we're probably not going to get all the way to verse 17 this week. I'm probably only going to get as far as verse 11 or so today. But I wanted to be sure to read verse 17 um, because the center of this chapter is that verse. Um, I'm going to be turning the pages of this Bible a lot because the fan back here. Um, verse 17, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. That's kind of the central idea at the center of this chapter. Um, now, one thing that you might have noticed uh, as we read through this, or as Tim read it, um, is that Paul's tone has changed a lot from what we were just reading. Did you notice that? So, um, in chapters 5 and 6, um, Paul uh, was angry. You know, you, you might say Paul was, was, was hot under the collar. Paul was harsh uh, in, in some ways. He couldn't believe the things that had been reported to him uh, about what was going on in this church in Corinth, Right? Um, and so he spoke ardently, stridently, right, with, with really strong language. Bradley and I have commented that usually when you think about Paul um, speaking forcefully, you think about the letter of Galatians, right? Oh, you foolish Galatians. But our sense is that 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 at least matches that uh, for, for tone. Now suddenly the tone has shifted quite a bit. Um, Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote... Um, so he's, he's now responding to a letter that they wrote to him, right? And what you'll notice, what you already did notice as we read through this, is that um, suddenly, uh, rather than, than speaking in terms that are black and white uh, and, that are, and that are kind of harsh in his assessment of them, um, he's almost talking as though there are some gray areas, right? And where he has some pastoral advice to offer, but it's not quite the level of a command, right? He says this explicitly. In a couple places. Verse 6, it says, as a concession, not a command. I say this. Um, notice verse, verse 10 and 12, he gives a charge, and he says, not I, but the Lord. And we'll, we'll come to this. This is where Jesus is talking about divorce. And so he can say, this is what Jesus said. But then in verse 12, he says, he says I say this, I, not the Lord. So he deliberately softens what he's saying. And then when we get to verse 25, he says, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment, right? 
Now, notice right there, he says, uh, I give uh, my judgment uh, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And, and somewhere else he says, look, I, I, I think I'm worth listening to, right? I think I've got some wisdom. I think I've got some experience. Um, what, what Paul is doing here um, is something that a good pastor does. He knows he's got some experience. He knows he's got some wisdom. Um, he is going to give his view and his, and his opinion and his advice uh, on some important matters. But he's also going to recognize that he's talking about things where Scripture hasn't given us black and white commands, where there is some gray, where what it means to be faithful can look different for different people. Um, there's plenty of areas of life, some of the most important ones that we have, questions about, for instance, marriage, uh, questions about uh, when and whether to have children, about how to raise our children. Um, and then outside of that, questions about career, about where to live, right? There's all kinds of questions where God has given us a lot of freedom to exercise wisdom and judgment. But the other thing that Paul is going to do, and this is part of good pastoral advice, is that even as he says, here's some gray areas, here's some wiggle room where, you know, there's not a right answer, he's going to ground what he says in things which are certain, which are sure, and which are secure, where there are right answers. Namely, two things, and they're the same two things that have been at the center of this entire letter. The, the, the two things that Paul wants to convey more than anything else throughout this entire letter are, who is God and who are you? We're talking about questions of identity here. Our world suggests all different kinds of ways of figuring out our identity. You might ask yourself, well, you know, where do I get mine? Where do I get my sense of who I am? Is it from my relationships, whether that's family or, or, or dating or friends or whatever? Is it from my job or my education? Is it from money? Um, what am I, about my social media feed? Where does that factor in to my sense of who I am or my politics? But Paul is very clear that our identity rests on one thing, which is that we are made to bear God's image by his act of creation, and we're united to Christ in his death and his resurrection by his act of redemption. That's who we are. That's at the center. And who is God? Well, God is the God who did that. God is the God who revealed himself to Moses as a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We hear this constantly in this church. We need to. We need to be reminded of these two things. Um, what Paul is, is going gonna, is gonna to convey to us uh, throughout this letter is that even as we wrestle with questions where there's freedom uh, and where faithfulness can look different for different people according to their gifts and their circumstances, and we'll unpack all of this as we go through uh, this, this, this chapter, it has to be unpacked in light of those two abiding truths, which are sure and secure and the same for every one of us. 
that God is God, that he is the God that we heard about in Psalm 62 earlier, with whom is power and steadfast love, mighty to save and willing to save, uh, and that we are made to bear his image and are united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection. So those are the things that we're going to unpack here. Um, I think this is a great illustration, by the way. Uh, you've, you've heard me say this before. Um, the psalm that has become my favorite psalm, um, maybe second only to Psalm 62. I don't think I can put another one above that one here. Um, but after Psalm 62, it's Psalm 78, right? Um, and in particular, I love this verse at the beginning of Psalm 78, where it says, the reason that we tell our kids the story, and the reason that we tell ourselves the story again and again every week, is so that we should set our hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And in that order, right? We set our hope in God. We don't forget who he is, that he's the God who got Israel out of slavery and Jesus out of the tomb. And then we have a shred of hope to be able to obey his commandments. Um, and I think that's what Paul is doing. Uh, in this letter. So, let's take a look at this. Um, I mentioned that chapter 7 is difficult even in terms of interpreting it, translating it, right? Um, and that starts with verse 1. Um, most of the translations that you've got, definitely if you're looking at one of those blue, blue pew Bibles, but most translations these days um, put quotations around the second half of verse 1. Okay, so Paul says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so they've written him a letter, and he's responding. And then, um, in quotes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Um, the, 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 the current scholarship all agrees those quotations should be there. Right? And this is important, right? It, it, it matters that we understand that Paul is responding to something that they said to him. Okay, they wrote to him, hey, Paul, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, right? And they're kind of asking for his, his comment on this. Um, that's not something that he is saying to them. And what we're going to see is that, in fact, he disagrees, at least as a general principle. As a general principle, he's going to say, no. No, you, 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 don't, you don't have this right. Um, you can see how important this is. It would, it, would, it would turn the letter on its head. It would have Paul saying the opposite uh, of what he wants to say if we, if we take those quotation marks away. What the Corinthians appear to be proposing, and we've seen them do this before, is this dualistic idea, right, that separates spirit from body, right, immaterial from material, um, that, that might, in some ways, um, be kind of a backwards way of doing the very thing that, as Bradley said a couple weeks ago, Paul wants them to do. Paul wants them, remember a couple weeks ago we talked about how Paul wants them to have their focus on the end of all things, right? But they may be doing that in kind of a backwards way by saying, well, look, uh, if our spirits are ultimately going to be separated from our bodies, then wouldn't it be better, be better to just forgo everything to do with our bodies? 
in particular, wouldn't it be better uh, to forego sexual relations altogether, right? Well, Paul has already rejected that before in this letter, right? Paul has already rejected the idea of that, of that dualism, that idea that spirit and matter have nothing to do with each other, um, that material and immaterial are somehow separate, and that the immaterial, the spiritual, is more important, and it alone is eternal, right? Having your focus on the end doesn't mean having it off of the material, physical, created world, including your own body. And, and why is that? Well, for Paul, it's for one reason. It's the resurrection. Um, if you flip to the end of this letter, you'll find an entire chapter all about the resurrection of the body that we're not going to get to this summer. Um, but, but, you know, Paul, Paul knows that's coming. Um, for him, it's the resurrection. It's the fact that in seeing Jesus' body, resurrected body, uh, in which he ate food and which still bore the physical marks of his crucifixion, we've seen a picture of what the end looks like. And, and it's not immaterial. It's not disembodied. right? So Paul has already rejected the idea that our bodies don't, don't matter. You know, to the contrary, our bodies do matter, and they're good. Paul said in the last chapter, your body is a temple. Your body is for the Lord. That was one of the things he was so upset about uh, in the last chapter. He was trying to convince them. It, it matters what you do with your body, right? It, it, it matters if a man is having sex with his father's wife. That's not okay. It, it, prostitution matters and is not okay. It matters if your body is joined to someone outside of Christ. Your body is good. The goal for Paul is not that we would be free from our bodies. Um, if anything, it, it's that our bodies would be freed. Right? Freed from sin and death. Freed from, from the curse. Now, you remember last week, Bradley talked about the different kinds of freedom. Right? He talked about the kind of freedom that we hear the most about in our world, which is freedom from constraint, freedom basically to do whatever I want as long as I'm not hurting somebody else, freedom from constraint. But then there's freedom to be what I was made to be. What Paul has in mind here in talking about the goodness of the body and in the goodness of sex as God has made it is freedom to be what we were made to be. Freedom to be embodied creatures bearing God's image, even in our bodies and in the relationship of marriage. I want you to notice something in, in, in verse, or sorry, in, in, uh, yeah, in the beginning of, of chapter 7. Um, Paul says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, um, but the wife does. Um, Paul is saying there, the body is good, sex is good, desire for sex is good. And what God has designed it for 
is to unite together mutually two people who are both like each other because they both bear God's image and yet unlikely, unlike each other because they're male and female and to bind them together in a relationship which is oriented towards generating and nurturing new life. And in another letter in Ephesians, Paul says, that's a picture of Jesus and the church. Like and unlike, united in a way that generates and nurtures new life. And so this is tremendously important. And what he says here is that that goes both ways equally for the man and for the woman. That the desire of both man and woman is good um, and should be recognized, uh, should be attended to, should be met. And that both are called to a life within their marriage where they understand that their own body does not ultimately belong to them, but that has been given to them in order to be given away to someone else. Um, this is a radical statement in the ancient world. No one had ever said anything like this before. This, this appears to be the first time uh, in the ancient world that anyone had recognized um, that sexual pleasure and that that relationship was actually something that was mutual between husband and wife. Um, here's a here's a not quite contemporary source. So this is this is fifth century. There's a um, there's a bishop in the Eastern Church. His name was Theodoret of Cyrus, and here's here's what he says about this. He says human laws demand that women be chaste, and if they're not, they're punished for it. But they don't demand the same from men. So he's saying this about human laws, laws made up by humans. Human laws demand that women be chaste, but they don't demand the same thing from men. He goes on, since it was men who made the laws, they did not make themselves equal with women, but allowed themselves extra indulgences. The holy apostle, however, inspired by divine grace, was the first one who made the law of chastity apply to men as well. This is a radical statement. Um, if you were to take one verse by itself, if you were to take the verse that says, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does, take that verse by itself, take it out of context, you can see how it could be horribly, horribly abused, right? Well, Paul would say to you, read the next sentence. Read the next verse. The wife does not have authority over her own body, or excuse me, the next sentence, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's mutual. Both have been given their bodies as a gift in order to give it away. You can see why we're going to take at least four weeks with this chapter. Um, I mean, as I thought about this, I thought, like, I don't know if I fully have a category for this kind of thinking. Um, this, this is not the kind of thing that anyone in our world really knows how to think about, but it seems to be wisdom that we desperately, desperately need. The other thing that is radically countercultural 
that we will have time to talk about this week, we're going to get it, like I said, as far as verse 11, is what Paul has to say about those who are unmarried uh, and those uh, who are married. Um, Read with me verses, let's start at 6, so 6 to 11. He says, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Let me me actually stop there. Now, context matters again, right? we have to remember that he's writing all of this in response to their statement. Okay, he's writing all of this in response to the statement, it's good not to have sexual relations, right? Right? And here's where Paul, I think, again, as, as a good pastor, is saying, okay, there is kind of a sense in which that might be true. Not as a general principle. Certainly not as a statement of the goodness of the body or or, or the goodness of of sex. We can't deny either of those things. Um, The misreading, though, that's very easy is to read Paul as saying that it is, in fact, better to be single than to be married. Better never to have sex at all. and and, And that the only reason to get married would be as a concession uh, for those who are too weak to control their sexual appetite. Right? That, would, that would be the misreading of what Paul is saying. The problem is that that doesn't make sense in light of Paul's other statements about the goodness of marriage. Um, in this chapter, um, in Ephesians 5, uh, elsewhere. What Paul seems to have in mind here, on the other hand, um, is not that there are some people out there who are too weak uh, to stay single, but simply this. What God has called each of us to is a life of service to him. Verse 17 again, right, the central idea here. Um, Paul wants each of us to live the life to which we are called um, by God. So the question arises, what kind of life is that? And what Paul is saying is, well... There's not only one answer to that. It depends on a lot of things. On the one hand, it depends on gifting, right? On what God has given you, on the way that God has made you, right? Paul seems to be saying, listen, I am one who, because of the way God has made me, because of what he calls my gift, does not need to get married, can serve God from outside of marriage, without burning with sexual desire, without, over, uh, without succumbing to that temptation, without sin, right? But Paul is not assuming or proposing or saying that that's everybody. Paul has in mind a couple, a, a normal couple, probably most couples. This, this, again, I assume is where human nature hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years. Um, where the distraction of sexual temptation might become so much of a distraction that it really gets in the way of being able to serve God. 
and that for that couple, it's better to marry and to serve God from within um, the covenant of marriage. Paul's trying to thread kind of a needle here, right? On the one hand, the letter suggested that it's better not to get married. The surrounding culture would be saying, no, no, you have to get married um, for economic reasons, if for no other. Um, And Paul is trying to thread a needle that says neither of those is quite right. The guiding principle should really be in what kind of life can I serve God most faithfully? As I said, that depends in part on your gifts. Um, I think, and here I'm I'm looking ahead a bit uh, to verses 17 to 24, which which we'll get to. Um, You know, Paul also seems to think that there's actually a lot to be gained from just looking at what your circumstances currently are. So I think Paul, if he were having a one-on-one conversation with you, and you were, and, and, and you were saying, you know, how, what kind of life can I best serve God from? Paul might say, well, tell me about yourself. And if you said, well, I'm single, he would say, there you go. So ask yourself right now, from within the fact that I'm not married, how can I serve God? How, how does the fact that I'm not married um, offer me freedoms to do things that I couldn't do? If I were married or if I had children, how can I best serve God from that situation? If, on the other hand, you said, I'm married, Paul would say, there you go. So from within that situation, from where you are right now, how can you serve God? How does your marriage equip you to serve God, to love other people? If you have children, how are those children a gift that you can share with other people? The question gets even richer when we sort of turn it towards the church as a whole, right? And say, look, in this church, there are people who are single, there are people who are married, there are people who have children, there are people who have old children, young children, there are people who have children leaving the nest. We'll be praying for a bunch of those over the next several weeks. And, and, and what if we were to ask ourselves, how is it that all of these different circumstances can be seen as things that God has given to us And we ask, how can we best serve him with those gifts? How can we serve each other? Right? How could those who are not married serve those who are? How are those who are married serve those who are not? Right? What what are are the, the, the modes of hospitality and of service and of care or prayer? Like, what are the things that our particular situation in life enables us to do for one another? I think what Paul is trying to convey here, the, the, again, the misreading that he's really trying to come against is the idea that it is holier to be married than unmarried, or vice versa. Right? And again, like I said, he's, he's kind of threading a needle. The Corinthians think that it's holier to not get married. I think in our context, in our day and age, from within our our culture as a church, we probably have to push against the opposite tendency, right? I think our culture has tended to say, no, it's actually holier, Uh, it is better to be married than unmarried. Um, When I was nine years old, um, I, uh, 
played the role of Tom Sawyer in Tom Sawyer. I, I, I know this is very easy to believe me as an, an actor, right? A drama kid, obviously. Um, no, this was, this was like my one play. I did this thing, and I think I got the part because I was like this tall and had brown curly hair and freckles. Like, Tom Sawyer, there you go. Um, so I played Tom Sawyer, and the, the la at the end of the play, the, the script said the last thing in the play is I'm going to stand on the stage by myself with a spotlight, and I'm going to read the epilogue to Tom Sawyer. I don't know if you knew Tom Sawyer had an epilogue, um, but it does. Here's, here's what I read, okay, so I'm nine years old. This is what I said. I said, so endeth this chronicle. It being strictly the history of a boy, it must stop here. The story could not go much further without becoming the history of a man. When one writes a novel about grown people, he knows exactly where to stop. That is, with a marriage. But when he writes of juveniles, he must stop where best he can. So if, if you didn't catch that, what that's saying is, if this were a story about grown-up people, then it would be obvious how it's supposed to end. It's supposed to end with a marriage, right? But and since it's about kids, we just, you know, we just got to stop it arbitrarily. Um, now, Mark Twain, you know, if you know Mark Twain, you realize he was a satirist, right? So in this epilogue, he's trying to tell a joke. He's trying to say something funny, right? Grown-up stories are supposed to end with a marriage. Ha, ha, ha. Problem is, that's only funny because in his day and age, it was true. It's not that untrue in our day and age, right? Think about the romantic comedies that you've seen. I mean, think about the fairy tales that you grew up with. Think about the ideal story that you have heard, not only out there, but in here, in, in the church, right? in the culture that we inhabit. And there are a lot of ways, most of them unspoken, in which we say that the only normal way for an adult life to end is with marriage. That does not make a lot of sense if the person who is at the very center of our faith was not himself married. It does not make a lot of sense for us to say that the only way to be fully human is to be married if the one, Jesus, who reveals to us what humanity is supposed to look like, who lived the most fully human life possible, was not married. And again, I think this is, this is at, the, at, the, at the root of what Paul is saying here. He, of course, has himself as an example as well. He also is not married. And I think what he's trying to convey is it is not holier to be married or to be unmarried. I put that quote on the front of the bulletin from John Piper um, that says, marriage and family are temporary for this age, but the church is forever. I'm declaring the radical biblical truth that being in a human family is no sign of eternal blessing. And that word eternal is important there. But being in God's family means being eternally blessed. Relationships based on family are temporary, but relationships based on union with Christ are eternal. Marriage is a temporary institution, but what it stands for lasts forever. Let me sum this up 
This is as far as we're going to get this week. Here's what I think Paul would say. There's no question that Paul has an exceedingly high view of marriage. Again, marriage is a covenant relationship designed by God to present a picture of Jesus and his church. It's hard to think of many things more important. If you are not married and you desire to be married, you desire a good thing. And you do not have to stop. But as good as marriage is, it's not ultimate. It's a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. It is not the pinnacle of what it means to be human. The pinnacle of what it means to be human is to be united to Christ. And that is true of all of us. That is true of the church. That is the definition of the church, that we are members of Christ's body and that we are members of each other. The big question for us as we go through this chapter is, is, is simply going to be this, and this is, this is why I wanted Psalm 62 read. I'm tempted to have Psalm 62 read every week that we're in this, because it's this challenge to wait on the Lord from wherever we are. If, if you are not married and you want to be married, if you are married and your marriage is struggling, if you don't have children and you desire children and you are waiting, if you have children and they're driving you crazy and you're waiting, the challenge for us is can we wait on the Lord? Can we, can we trust that he is who he says he is, that he is faithful? Can we ask ourselves this question, what does it mean to live the life to which I am called based on who he is and who I am and who we are as a church? That's the thing that we're going to be wrestling with um, over these next four weeks. Um, we need a lot of help. We need a lot of prayer. You can, you can certainly pray for me each week uh, as we go through this. Um, and I'll pray for you. And let's pray for each other as we wrestle through these things. Um, we need to be fed. Uh, we need sustenance. Uh, and so we have this table that God has spread for us in the wilderness to come to now. Let's pray before we come.